Hello there, and welcome to SITREP, BFBS's radio's weekly defence discussion on issues that matter to you now and will do in the future. I'm Christopher Lee. In the next 60 minutes, everyone's talking helicopters for Helmand, but isn't that a smokescreen? Hillary Clinton says the nuclear clock is ticking over Iran. Are the Ayatollahs getting their four-minute warning? And the demos are back on the streets of Tehran. The Americans are promoting a, proposing a defence umbrella in the Gulf. Is the UK going to go with it? Why are we defending Saudi Arabia when Amnesty says it's a human rights strategy? The MOD is changing the door names along the Chiefs of Staff corridor. New names, new rules about telling the truth. And why we should never forget the Commonwealth, the real special relationship. And has global credit crunching eclipsed the moon. Well, with me at the, um, at the Sitret Round Table from the Limehouse Group of Global, uh, uh, global Analysts, Hajir Tamorian, the Daily Mail's former diplomatic editor, John Dickey, and the sometime Kremlin policy advisor, Alexander Nekrasov. Um, I want to start with um, Vice President Joe Biden, because he's been in Europe, is in Europe, Eastern Europe. He's been in uh, Ukraine yesterday, John uh, Dickey, today, Georgia, telling the governments there to cut corruption to sharpen up their Human Rights Act, but also that they're on course for NATO membership if, if they put their act together. Predictably, the Russians are saying today that they're going to stop Georgian ambitions. I suppose what he's really saying is, you know, George Bush and um, uh, Vice President Cheney, my predecessor, uh, but they were all for you and they, they love the way you do business, but we don't. Yes, uh, there's a new tone in, entirely in it. It's interesting to, to think back only a few months when Vice President Biden was regarded as something of a loose cannon during the campaign. Now he's playing it down the line. He's not giving uh, the people in Georgia or Ukraine the idea that uh, everything is going to be backed up to the hilt no matter what they do. And uh, in Georgia, for example, uh, he was uh, asked about monitors to these contested uh, two parts that brought the Russians into war last year. He didn't make any promises there. And secondly, he did not give them any promise of hardware to bolster up their army. Yeah. Um, Alexander Nekrasov, um, I bet Moscow loves this guy. Uh, well, <laughs> I... I, I, I to be honest with you, Moscow doesn't really know about him much, strangely enough, because... Uh, that is strange, Joe, actually. Joe, Joe Biden was always, um, you know, that one heartbeat away thing about Sarah Palin. Well, in Moscow, they were also afraid of him because he has been in the business for ages and nobody really knows what he stands for. He's a good foreign policy one, person. Every time he opens his mouth, he seems to put his foot into it, you know. And um, the reason uh, he's tough talking now is because Obama is not doing very well. Yesterday's or today's uh, press conference was a disaster on health care. So they need to show that tough on the foreign policy front because they have to compensate the weakness inside the country. And that's usually how it happens in America. The moment they, you see the administration losing its grip on domestic front, they become tough on the world front. So it was a strange thing to see the Ukrainians and the Georgians looking stunned by his comments because they were actually expecting him to announce you know help and support he'd and come with he come with the chocolate biscuits hasn't he well yeah they, i mean they this they was going to be a nice sort of meeting yes, and they thought oh great you know nato and so on Hajir. when i heard him for a moment i thought president george w was back in a third term 
Um, oh, I got so, the impression he was saying, no, we, we, all the business has changed. We're not Bushites anymore. That's right. Yes, suddenly such militant voices coming out of the most, the arch liberals of American um, Do you think Biden's an arch liberal? I mean, it always struck me as being yes. so much of a policy wonk, Very much foreign so. policy I, man, that he couldn't I be. I expected him to be wet, really, but I am puzzled. In a, in a way, it probably gives um, the support to that old truism that when administrations change, a country's foreign policy doesn't change. But at the same time, we've got to remember, America does not run NATO on its own. The allies in Europe can say, no, sorry, same way as the Americans push for the, for the membership of... Uh, Americans push for the membership of uh, Turkey in the EU, but the EU runs its own business. But yeah. Ukraine hasn't uh, decided to apply for membership yeah. of NATO, and even talking about the possibility, uh, Biden seemed to say, it's there, but uh, there's no date. Yeah, no Georgia wants scale. to get in there. Mm -hmm. Georgia wants in. Georgia, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me uh, another aspect of this. He warned them all, and he was talking about Estonia much earlier in the week. He was warning them all, do not get into too much of a cosy relationship with, uh, with Russia, Alexander. Uh, don't get into too much energy. On, on energy. He meant energy, obviously, yeah. because this dependence worries everybody. And you know Europe has already found a way around it, and they're going to have that South Stream running that uh, pipeline. Yeah, but not uh, yet. Yeah, but that already it's a way out for them. And uh, basically everybody's thinking how to get but around remind it. us what happened with Ukraine, where the Russians proved you could turn the tap off, and that would affect Europe if necessary. Well, basically what happened was that the Russians turned off the gas tap to Ukraine uh, because of the arguments around the price. Yeah. And they did it twice. Because one time was enough, of course, to terrify everybody. But the second time was absolutely a disaster this year in January. And it was shown, you know, that Russia was actually showing the world that it's punishing Ukraine by Pre Prime Minister Putin telling the Gazprom chairman, cut it off, cut them off. Let's teach them a lesson. That was shown on primetime television. But print. not just because of price. It was obviously to uh, intervene in the electoral process well, there, I mean, right. to get the pro-Russian... No, but I mean, the, the cause, the artificial reason mm. was... Uh, there are many other reasons. They wanted to destroy Yushchenko, yeah. the president. But uh, the point is this. Russia has damaged itself to such an extent with this, uh, those actions that now they don't really know what to do because uh, Western Europe doesn't trust them anymore. Eastern Europe doesn't trust them anymore. And China is not prepared to pay the same price. I mean, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not being sort of um, provocative, John, but uh, Russia, for the moment, I mean, they're back on stream uh, with the NATO uh, Cooperation Council, but really Russia at the moment doesn't actually matter that much to West European thinking and to American thinking, does it? Not really. They just want to keep it simmering. There's no need to uh, get into details with them. Apart from reducing uh, um, strategic missiles, there's no great uh, desire... No, Afghanistan. Afghanistan is important. Russia is important for Afghanistan, crucial, well, because come, the roots... We, the also, roots yeah. we also need the Russians, for example, not to have such a cozy relationship with Ahmadinejad, the Ahmadinejads of this world. Uh, I think American um, leaders, European leaders, ought to be careful about hurting the national sentiment of the Russian people. The Russian people will be there permanently. We need them. They are important. Well, it's, it's rather like, uh, is it Kyrgyzstan? Is the election, I think it's today, isn't it? The election, uh, presidential election today. And uh, the president, the incumbent, President uh, Bakigev, uh, he is uh, going to get re-elected. He's playing the Americans off against 
against the Russians. Yeah, well, it's a dangerous game, by the way. In Central Asia, many leaders ended up, um, you know, in trouble because of that. Uh, he also plays a game with China. You see, he's playing a game uh, with three big nations, and it, it might end with, in trouble for him. Because obviously, Kyrgyzstan is a dictatorship, and uh, there is no problem with winning the elections. But uh, uh, the problem is that you really have to decide whose side you're on. Listen, dictatorship, I saw a, a lovely, um, made a note of a lovely expression. I mean, this is diplomatic speak, John, you'll love this. It, uh, it was it, Kyrgyzstan was described as a consolidated authoritarian regime. I mean, work that out. You've got a dictatorship, haven't you? Yeah. Listen, talking of um, politics, um, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, defence in Whitehall at the moment and at Westminster, I know the MPs have sort of pushed off for their holes. They're not coming back until October. I wonder where they're all going. Um, they're all talking about defence. The Prime Minister's talking about defence. The opposition's talking about defence. Uh, the leader of the Liberals is talking about defence. The newspapers are talking about defence. On the line, somebody else is talking about defence. The Observer's Ned Temko. Um, Ned, I can't remember a time when defence was such a hot political potato. I think you're right. I... I and I think for the first time in a generation or two, it will actually be a serious issue in the forthcoming election whenever it's held, probably early next year. Is it going to be a vote? Uh, you know, can you catch votes or lose votes because of it? Uh, probably on the margins. I mean, my, my own view is that on that level it won't matter because it would take almost divine intervention for Gordon Brown to win, I think, at this stage. But uh, His pre predecessor, of course, had that. Yes, yeah, but uh, I, I mean, it will figure seriously, and, and the aspect that will figure seriously, which is fascinating, is something that until, you know, a few weeks ago would have been considered the province of Anorak's defense wonks, and that's military procurement, because the real issue is that this um, controversy over shortage of helicopters, as the earlier controversy over armored vehicles in Afghanistan has put a human face on this. And it really, really does touch people because, uh, first of all, this war in Afghanistan is less controversial than the one in Iraq for most uh, British voters. But even those who have misgivings about the war, and as I say, it's, it's a far lesser number than uh, was the case with Iraq, absolutely believe that if you send young men and women out to fight, uh, you've got to give them the tools to do that, and that's the issue. That's why it's such a live issue. Yeah, I mean, but it, it, it's not just the uh, it's just not just the uh, the politicians. I was reading a piece of yours last Sunday about the Lynx helicopter. Yes. Uh, and you know whether you should how, how often you can add bits and pieces to it to modernise it. And, and the truth is, is, is that the military sometimes is just as much blame for not getting things through on time as the, as the politicians in the procurement program. That's true, but I think the deeper problem with the what used to be called the Future Links Project, it, and I think this issue probably won't go away, is that um, no matter what the merits and demerits of that particular new helicopter, which comes on stream in 2014 for the Army and 2015 for the Navy, the real problem, which uh, rightly is exercising people, is that clearly uh, British troops on the ground in Helmont now don't have enough helicopters, particularly transport helicopters. Right. Ned Temko, The Observer, thank you very much indeed. John Dickey, here is uh, a classic example where the uh, newspapers 
television, and the people that watch and read can actually latch on to something. They understand helicopter. What they don't understand is strategy. That's true, but the, the actual numbers game is important. There's been so much confusion applied to this uh, that it, it's well to get it straight. Three years ago, there were 3,000 British troops there and 10 helicopters. Today, there are 9,000 troops and 19. So when talking about the increased number, it's, it's only relevant to yeah. the number of people there. But, of course, the helicopters have just become a symbol of something deeper, the whole strategy of our activities in Afghanistan. It was interesting that in the latest poll in the Times, two-thirds of those people polled believe that British troops should be removed within a year. There is more to it than just the casualties, the lack of proper equipment. People are beginning to say, why are we there? And I think the government here is losing that debate. They're not putting the case for um, making sure that the terrorist plot in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, doesn't extend to this country. Now, on the line, the, uh, I think we have the Daily Telegraph's defence correspondent, Thomas Harding. Just back from Helmand, aren't you? Yes, indeed, that's right. Yeah, I mean, what do they make make of this whole thing that's going on in essentially in London? It's a bit of a dislocation from what's the reality of what's happening on the ground and the whole debate about helicopters. Obviously, that would be quite welcome, this debate on the helicopters, but that's become a bit of a side issue now for people who are actually fighting on the ground, mainly because we have a significant number of American helicopters in theatre at the present time that in Helmand that are providing a fair amount of assistance for air assault operations. The Black Watch have done nine air assault operations in the last three months, which is quite a significant amount compared to the paratroopers last year who did 12. So this has become a bit of a an issue in which to batter the government, right, right, rightly so, because you know, as I've been writing for the last three years, it's been appalling, the lack of helicopters. But yeah, the issue has been addressed, and we are going to get more towards the end of this year, and the, the more Chinooks will, will come online to replace the ones that are out there. So uh, people feeling on the ground is, is people... Uh, Really, they're, 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 the bigger issues are actually troop numbers. We need more people there, simple as that, uh, in order to, be, you know, to win this operation effectively. This is the key point, pretty much, in the whole operation in Helmand. We've got the Americans coming in large numbers, possibly more uh, you know, will be granted by President Obama, possibly more British troops. So that, that is the key, key issue at stake here. It's fascinating. I mean, for, as you say, for the past three years you've been writing about it, but I mean, I've seen you know, the stuff that you've been writing. It's a sort of a consistent sort of, not a campaign, but a consistent reporting, this is a problem. It's only recently, though, that people are suddenly saying, yeah, that may be right. Now, why is it taking all this time? I think 19 British soldiers dead has ignited the, in one month, has ignited the debate that we should have had three years ago. We entered Afghanistan with very little debate um, on why we were there, what the force was doing there. The force grew from 3,300 to the three times the size now. So that, that, that is part of the, the issue. Um, but, yeah, we've been writing about it for a long time. Uh, the government, you know, they have tried to, to, to get the problem sorted out, but they have made several errors. Uh, you've got to bear also in mind that two, three years ago we were writing about when you get Soviet helicopters, uh, former Soviet helicopters, uh, to be used in, civilian, in a civilian-type capacity, not on operations, taking supplies. Finally, they're doing that, you know, they, but... I saw out there, I saw half a dozen hip uh, Amer uh, Soviet, former Soviet helicopters that are being used to ferry supplies for British troops. 
you know, there was this sort of slightly arrogant attitude that we had two years ago. We can't use Soviet helicopters to sort out our boys, but now it's a necessity. The government also hasn't sold the fact that this is a war. You know, we have not been on a war footing. The Americans have, and that's why they're sort of, there's a bit more sort of oomph about them to get the job done. But I think only now we are realising that, and the politicians are realising that, and the public are realising that. But I'm afraid it's taken sort of eight deaths in one day, 19 in one month for that to come about, unfortunately. I'm just, I'm just wondering if... The, um also, in, in, in the public's mind, the helicopter thing isn't a bit of a smokescreen because um, it's the strategy that might have been wrong in the first place or because the nature of the conflict has changed, which war, it always happens in warfare. But it's far more difficult for people to understra- understand strategy than it is to understand something like, have we got enough helicopters? Mm. I, I entirely agree with that. The strategy has never been sold properly in Afghanistan. I was with John, uh, John Reed in 2005 when he went round the country and then it, the strategy was, well, there's 90% of heroin in British streets comes from, from Afghanistan, so that's why we're going there. Do you ever hear that argument today? No, you don't. It's, it's another slightly, I, I slightly disingenuous argument that, that if Al-Qaeda, if we don't, if we don't go into Afghanistan, then Al-Qaeda and, and the Taliban are going to sort of plan plots in, that will, will manifest themselves in the United Kingdom. Not true. You know, September 11th was partly planned in, in, in Hamburg, partly planned uh, in America. So... I, I think their arguments are slightly disingenuous, and the, the, the public can't can't sort of latch onto them. They can't sort of see that Afghanistan and Pakistan is really the connection to September 11th and and July the 7th. It's, it's a difficult connection to make. I think you know what we've got to say is is, is 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 sell this argument in a better way. And I don't know how to do that. But what I do know is that is that we're there now. We can't leave. We've got to get the job done properly, and and that's why we've got to to remain there. Tell me just just finally, you, you've been watching the um, the light brigade, which is uh, which is I mean designed just to go to Helmand, hasn't it? The, it goes in the autumn, is it? Uh, yes, eleven light brigade. Eleven light brigade counterinsurgency. Yeah, brigade, it's called. Yeah, I um, I actually sort of wonder what the guys there must think of this uh, debate. I mean, they've got enough sort of anxieties anyway, without wondering whether the politicians are really on their side. I think that they would welcome the debate because one of the complaints of soldiers on the ground is that we only get reported on when some of us are killed. You know, we don't even get reported on when we lose an arm and a leg or both. So they they welcome the fact that it's, it's you know it's in the in the in the uh, in the public's eye now, and um, they also rec- you know they, they they welcome the fact that people are paying attention to what they will be going out and doing, uh, and and the politicians are under pressure to make sure they get absolutely the right kit. You know, we are getting a lot of good equipment coming through. We can do better. There are better vehicles that we can order, but you know, largely speaking, we are getting good kit. But what needs to be sold to the public is the fact that this is a war, and in war, no matter what equipment you have, no matter how many helicopters you have, you will suffer fatalities. But that hasn't been sold to the public. It's just been sort of fobbed off as some little sort of minor operation in the corner of somewhere, non-wear away. Thomas Harding, Daily Telegraph, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, it's fascinating, um, isn't it, Alexander, that I suppose we're getting... Um, getting into Afghanistan, we've been there almost the same time as the Soviet Union was in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, lessons... And exactly the same problems. And exactly... Oh, so exactly I was wondering the, the, I mean, the lessons I, I, learned. I wonder, I wonder whether the, um, the British shouldn't talk to the Russians again and just go for those, you know, terrible years of the Soviet invasion. <laughs> and... Uh, <clears throat> no, let me finish first. And... Uh, yeah. The point here is... He's a mix of the infinite. No, but the point here is, first of all, of course, this war became a big war for Britain after Obama, you know, re- really declared it his war. 
And if Obama didn't send all those thousands of troops there and didn't say that this is the main war for us, Britain would have been quietly tagging along and we wouldn't have that debate about helicopters or strategy and so on. But because Obama put the spotlight on Afghanistan, and, you know, there will be about 40,000... It's also true, because the spotlight, as far as the United Kingdom is concerned, was Iraq. I mean, what's happening now sort of mm-hmm. coincides so with the it's, it's getting out of battle. through the Obama war now, because yeah. we had the Bush war in the in Iraq, and now we have an Obama war in Afghanistan. Or a Bukhaj war rather than the Bush but, war. But the good, the good thing about it is, of course, the debate is on. That's yeah. the important thing. For the soldiers on the ground, the important thing is whether they get the equipment. Yeah. And the debate is on, and the government has to respond. So that is a good thing. Debate has your chattering classes only. <laughs> is that right? Our, our president is a historian. I'm going to ask him, Christopher, do you actually believe that history repeats itself? No. Exactly. As a farce always. Yeah. Yes. Situations change. Only historians repeat themselves. <laughs> exactly. And you never believe historians. Yes. Mm-hmm. Look, um, situations... Do you know what, hang on, do you know what the collective noun for a historian is? A spite. <laughs> so you never believe them. That's right. Listen, I want to say seriously yes. that... I was serious. The, when the Soviets got in there, um, the whole of Afghanistan, Afghanistan united against them. And on top of that, um, a huge And the CIA supplied them with uh, a Stinger missile. America, <laughs> Britain, yes, gave, gave in their best web- weaponry, encouragement, training. Mm. The Saudis poured in huge amounts of money. And so it became a war between the East and the West. Mm. That, and a proxy the war. Soviet Union were also in economic trouble. It, it broke its back eventually. But this time, for example, don't forget the Northern Alliance. The Taliban did not actually capture the whole of Afghanistan. In 2003, when the Allies went in, the Northern Alliance were given help and they po- captured Kabul. So... Um, Situation is very different, mm. and um, but come on, we t- just talk about. I mean, they're not lessons learned, but they're the similarities. I mean, for example, Alexander. I mean, part of the attraction of Putin as a, a as a leader for his own people was that he got out of Afghanistan, wasn't it? I mean, he was he, he sort of he was one of the planners that well, Gorbachev got out uh, got of Gorbachev, he, he he was one of the yes. he was one of the planners and said, look, we 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 can't stay here any longer. Well, the generals basically came to him and said, look, we cannot, same years that all came we, down. We, by the we, way, wasn't we it? cannot win this war. Mm. There's no chance. It's mm. draining resources. The army can't operate properly, and so on. And uh, the only thing that um, uh, is basically historically very embarrassing for the Americans is that when they were fighting a proxy war with the Soviets, Mm. they created the mighty powerful Al-Qaeda machine, Mm. which is now hitting at the Brits and Americans in Afghanistan, highly trained, highly motivated, know how to raise money, know where to, you know, how to operate in, in different environments. So the Americans have created that problem that they're now trying to sort out during the invasion of Afghanistan. you know, we're kidding around about sort of history repeating itself. Just people in the Foreign Office who are the the real sort of planners and experts on this, more experienced than anybody else in Whitehall, what do they, well, how do they read it? Well, they now accept that this is something that's going to take a long time, and it's a question of selling to the public the idea that they're not going to win a war in one year or two years. And therefore, it's going to be a combination of military, economic development, social uh, adventure into an unknown territory and until they get these combination of factors together properly it's going to be a long long haul I would like to come back Christopher with oh, just yeah. two sentences 
the, the Taliban do not even represent the Pashtun element of, of, of Afghanistan. President Karzai is, 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 is a Pashtun. There are all the major tri- tribal leaders of Pashtunistan in the south are against the Taliban. Tell me, but Pash- Taliban is drawn from Pashtun. That's right. But they, why? It, Can you tell me why? I mean, just as a, the, a fact. Th- these are the f- mainly former um, uh, Afghan students in... Uh, Which refugee, is what Taliban ref- means, students. Yeah, refugee camps in Pakistan, and they have become Islamicized. They do not even represent traditional uh, Pashtunism. Pashtunist, Pashtunist people were rather relaxed with their Islam. So, These hang on, Islamists. can I come back? Because I'm still not quite clear, time. maybe the audience isn't. Um, the Taliban is drawn from the Pashtuns, which yes. we should always remember. Yes, right. Um, but I'm still not quite are, clear why. Is it because Pashtuns were educated rather than other tribal when groups? When they went, when thousands and thousands of Pashtun families went into uh, Pakistan during the Soviet occupation, American money, Sa- Saudi money, Saudi training, Islamism spread among them. And uh, tribal leaders lost ground to the Islamists. Right. Now okay. the Islamists are coming back into Afghanistan and they do not by any means represent all the Pashtuns. I thought it was fascinating, uh, something I read this morning, that there are 540 whatever are madrasa. What is the plural of madrasa? Ma- ma- madaris. Madaris, madaris. Uh, 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 Arabic, yes. yes. Uh, uh, and the, 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 the schools for the poor basically, the, right. the, um, yeah. uh, Islamic schools for the poor, 500 and something of them. Mm-hmm. Supposed to be training ground, uh, was supposed to be educational places, but they're training ground for new rebels, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And who financed it in the first place? Yeah. CIA. CIA, mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia. No. Yeah. Exactly, they created the problem, and they're now so, it's just like mm-hmm. the Chinese Communist Party is known for. Can I just, uh, uh, just one, one question that comes from this? I'm just wondering whether, you were talking about Obama and it's his war, etc., which I'm not quite sure I agree about that. But um, is President Obama going to have to downgrade his expectations of what he can or his people can do in Afghanistan? Forget Pakistan at the moment. uh, He has already downgraded his expectations. And I can tell you that uh, when you ask me about Gorbachev and the pullout, they will have to pull out. They will have to. And that's the, 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 the absurdity of the whole thing. They know it. Because they, when they say, oh, this conflict will last for, you know, 10 years or something, no way, no way. They will have to, there will be a Gorbachev moment in America, there will be a Gorbachev moment in, in Britain, they will have to pull out, maybe in a couple of years. Okay, listen, um, Afghanistan, I, I suppose from America, I was, I've been thinking about the, um, the 40th anniversary of the um, landing on the moon, so if you don't mind, from Afghanistan to Iran is simply one step mankind. Do you like that? No, you don't like that. Right. Never mind. Um, what's going on there? Because, I mean, today I noticed small, small, small demos, more demos. Uh, nobody seems to be organising, but they're there. Um, just word of mouth, may have, perhaps. No ed- evidence that Iranians want to change the Islamic system just the way it's run. Um, Hashir, this whole debate, which seems to be getting to a pitch in a way, because I was hearing this morning that the, the Supreme Leader yeah. may not be backing his man um, any, any, any longer. Tell us who are the main... Let's start by telling us who are the main pl- uh, players, regardless as a, yes. t- a teaching. 
Well, uh, the supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, who is the second-ranking Ayatollah in Islamic learning, by the way, and his position elevation by Khomeini was resented by the top grand Ayatollahs. He is the leader of the hardliners, and he's picked uh, a little yes-man called Ahmadinejad to do his bidding. And he's in the, in the process of that, he's seen, suspected by the majority of the people of Iran, as well as the grand Ayatollahs, as having... Um, indulge in a major, major act of cheating. So uh, many people are using this as an excuse to distance themselves from the ayat, from the supreme leader. The supreme leader has lost his legitimacy. Um, his old kingmaker, Ayatollah Rafsanjani, former president, speaker of parliament, right-hand man of Khomeini. Doing, uh, last Friday he was, speak, he was doing the Friday prayers at university. Yeah. I thought he was going to sort of, you know, very tacitly or very quietly or reluctantly yeah. back the Supreme Leader. He e- didn't. Even the Supreme Leader didn't know. He, but out of his dis- despair, he asked this man, took the risk of asking this man to come in front of the nation, hoping that he would be a mediator, saying m- ameliorating things. But Rafsanjani is deeply wounded by the elevation of uh, Ahmadinejad, and he did not even once mention the Supreme Leader. But the Supreme Leader must be a bit worried then. Very it took much. have actually asked him in the first place. Very much worried. I hear the latest. At least 36 um, middle-ranking army commanders have been arrested. In other words, they are suspected of having thought talked about the coup. Uh, The Grand Ayatollahs are now talking among themselves. There is talk, division in the supreme um, uh, assembly of the the leadership. There is talk of uh, getting together, talking about the the, basic law of Iran, the constitution, etc. This crisis is not coming to an end and it's getting deeper and deeper. And I'm not surprised, therefore, that Secretary Clinton of the United States has just said Tehran is so paralyzed it cannot make any decisions at the moment. Yeah. Just one other thing. Um, I was also seeing that some of the uh, supporters of uh, the president, uh, Ahmadinejad, are angry with the man he's appointed as his deputy, or uh, the appointment of the deputy. Yes. And his, this is the man who said, we could probably be friends with Israel, and they don't like that at all. Mm. Now, why did he appoint such a man? Well, they are close friends, and they are relatives, and this man ha- had wanted to endear himself to the people of Iran, Mr. Mashai, by saying, we are enemies of Zionism, but not the, pe- not the Jews. Ah, I and see. a so lot was, of hardliners, mm. therefore criticise Ahmadinejad for even saying that Iranians could be friends with Jews. Now, uh, the uh, Ahmadinejad, Mr Ahmadinejad, is to be confirmed as president next month, I think it is. Yeah, He'll be right. sworn in as president. Right. And could, the, could the Supreme Ayatollah, even now the Supreme Leader, actually dump him? Well, uh, former President Khatami has uh, asked urged the Supreme Leader to conduct a referendum, a plebiscite among the people to see whether they are happy with the present situation. So, uh, Doors are opened in front of him, but I don't think he can make any decisions. Interestingly, the grandson of Ayatollah Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic, has left Iran in order not to be present, not to be browbeaten into being present at the inauguration of Ahmadinejad next month. Right. Um, let's go to John Marks, uh, the editorial director of Cross-Border Information, listening to that. John, what's your take that's happening in Iran? I think right from the beginning, I mean, as Hajir says, there's, uh, we're in a, what is both a, a fluid and yet uh, somewhat now stagnating political situation. 
you've got members of the ruling establishment very factionalized, falling out against each other, of which the most obvious is Rafsanjani against Khamenei. But you've also got um, a situation where the ruling group who have stuck around um, President Ahmadinejad have got themselves into a situation. I'm not sure how far they can move. You have the paramilitary groups from the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps and the Besiege, who we used to call at the time of the revolution, the Comité, very well trained now for actually fighting exactly the sort of pro protests that we've been seeing on the streets. And there's, I get a feeling from the, 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 the real top of the, um, the ruling group that if they give too much ground now, they could see a lot of ground coming from beneath their feet. So they're entrenched. So I think the protests and the fact that protest movements continued is somewhat surprising. But the response also is, is somewhat predictable. People will be looking for a political way out. But actually finding that, I think, still remains extraordinarily difficult. What about the Israelis and all this? They must be watching, uh, not glee, but a bit of uh, you know, satisfaction with what's going on. Well, of course, what's, been, what's happened is that after the initial few weeks and months of his premiership, um, the very hawkish uh, Bibi Netanyahu can turn around to the, um, the rather more conciliatory Obama um, administration in Washington and say, well, told you so. Um, which actually I think is, is not a fair representation of the way the geopolitics go. But it, it pretty much allows Israeli hardliners to entrench themselves, and it allows their supporters to turn around and say, look here, Mr. Obama, you and your administration was looking to talk to the Iranians, but look what you get. Israel is, is your friend. And I think the backdrop to that was that I think most serious analysts were expecting, and indeed still can expect, over a number of issues, to, be, to have strains in the U.S.-Israeli relationship like we haven't seen for very many years. John Marks of Cross-Border Information, thank you very much indeed. Um, fascinating, isn't it, this, um, John, the fact that um, uh, Secretary of State Clinton, Hillary Clinton, is now saying, uh, if you happen to be a Gulf ally of ours, don't worry, we're prepared to bolster the defence of of the, all the Gulf allies if Iran develops a nuclear weapons program. That's almost saying we, it's nothing we can do about it. We expect them to, to develop a nuclear weapons. And that's it. They, even though they, with the one hand they say they want to resume some form of dialogue, with the other hand they're saying whatever the dialogue results in, it certainly won't stop them uh, going ahead with the enriched uranium process. Um, it's almost a defeatist attitude, which I'm surprised to see from Hillary Clinton at this stage. Of all people. Yeah, yeah, of all people. Um, the other side of this is uh, something that I was reading from Amnesty International. They gave the Saudis, Alexander, an absolute fanging, didn't they, about, they said, look, you've got a counter-terror war, which we understand that in operations. Um, but the way you're going about it is bad. It's, it, it impinges on human rights, etc. Well, I mean, that's almost as red. I mean that it does impinge on human rights if you're doing counter-terrorist operations? Well, uh, I think Saudi Arabia is a problem for America, always has been. Because for everyone. Am but America especially, because America was going on this crusade about democracy, and the moment I, I remember I would ask some American official, what about Saudi Arabia? And they would not know what to say to me. 
because they would start to backtrack and say, well, it's a, it's a very unusual situation. And I say, and then my next question would be, how many soldiers do you have there? Come on, tell me. All oh, their advisors, they would say, but how many, I said. I remember seeing hearing that about Vietnam. 40,000, 40,000. Yeah. And yet I would, I would say that, how about those, you know, you remember that Tonkin incident, Tonkin incident mm-hmm. in, the, in the Vietnam? And they said, no, 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 that will never happen. This will never happen. But uh, what I'm saying here is that this is the, <laughs> the problem that America has about democracy and human rights. And of course, this anti-terrorist operation, of course there will be human rights abuses. In any country, there will be human rights abuses when you have the Secret Service and special you know, forces going after terrorists in urban areas or whatever areas they are. And there's nothing you can do about it. And that's why the American debate, should we torture or not torture, and were we right or not right to torture terrorists, was wrong in its sense, because it's not the question. You cannot say to your... People, go after them. This is a war on terror. Do anything you want to prevent an attack, but then pussyfoot with them. Yeah. Excuse me? You have to pussyfoot with them. You can't touch them. That's more like this. Yeah. John, can I come back to this thing, Hillary Clinton saying that America is prepared to, to, to develop a, a, an umbrella mm. over the Gulf states, a, a coalition of umbrellas, she says. Presumably, I mean, the United Kingdom was saying, oh, we never get into one of those sorts of things again in the Middle East, could actually be in it. Indeed. Well, we've had umbrellas there before. The, the Trucial States, uh, as they used to be called, were protected by the British and uh, were naval patrols going up and down. Still are. And they're still there. So that I think there is a lesson, though. I think um, it'll be a, a very wary government here in Whitehall that considers following in the footsteps of the United States into a large-scale military protection for the Gulf States. Hajir, is something else that came up from that, discussions, that she, I mean, she was... She was at a, a, a sort of a, a conference when she said all this. But she said that America is still offering engagement um, to Iran. I mean, this is the Obama yes, overture, yes. isn't it? She says, but the nuclear clock is ticking. Yes, I wonder uh, whether he meant... I've said a four-minute warning. Where, you know, if you don't do something about it, mm. we will. There are, there are reports that Iran is now building a nuclear bomb test uh, site in the in the middle of the central Iranian desert, and the, the, it may come within the next hundred days or so. I wonder whether what the test would Iranians testing their first atomic bomb. So the, the, I mean, in that case, the facility must have been ready for some time. Yeah, and there there were uh, there are reports that Iranian officials, uh, techni- technicians were present at North Korea's recent test of its weapon. So um, things are happening, def- definitely, but I'm not sure what he, she meant exactly. Yeah, I mean, but, but then back to uh, Israel, John, um, the Israelis have always been the prime candidates to take out any installation because they've got a track record having done it in Iraq. Indeed, and the reports were that they had moved warships through the Suez Canal with the acceptance of the Egyptians in order to uh, have some sort of dress rehearsal for uh, a launch against uh, Iran. Missile carrying ships. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, I want to stay in the in the region, Hashir, uh, Muqtada Sada. Yes. Uh, be to Syria to see your very good friend, the president of Syria. <laughs> yes, I. What's he doing there? Yes, I was wondering. Um, I was wondering why they wanted to be seen in each other's company. Um, why? Because Bashar Assad wants us to think of him as a progressive man, a socialist, whereas uh, Muqtada Assad is a fundamentalist, hardline Shia. But he Muslim. did stay out at, towards the end. He did stay out of the conflict, yeah. didn't he, in yeah. Iraq? Yeah. 
but the, therefore Muqtada Assad going to be seen at the court of a hereditary president uh, who's not at all popular among the other Arabs, to me, was a sign of desperation. Of course, there could be secret deals between the two. They somehow calculated both. It was good for them, for their images to be seen together. Okay. Actually, we're running late. It's uh, 39 minutes past the hour, just coming up, or 21 minutes to it. You're listening to SITREP, BFBS Radio's roundtable on the defence issues that affect you every week and the future. I'm Christopher Lee. With me from the Limehouse Group of Global Analysts, Hajir Tamora, you've just been hearing, the Daily Mail's former diplomatic editor, John Dickey, and the sometime Kremlin policy advisor, Alexander uh, Nekrasov. John, um, (laughs) the MOD has got the carpenter out. It's changing all the door names along the Chiefs of Staff corridor. New First Sea Lord this week, uh, a new Chief of the General Staff next week. New names? New rules about telling the truth? It just depends on how open they are in telling the truth. But I don't think you'll see a great deal of change, for example, uh, by Sir David Richards. I mean, uh, Sir Richard Dannett has talked about his shopping list. He's made it clear that uh, they need to be... Um, He's left it in the entry. Yes, I left it. And, and I think um, David Richards is the sort of man who'll pick it up because he was keen on the surge uh, with the Americans and they thought that the way to tackle this whole issue is to get more troops there. So I don't see any great difference there. As far as the... Very thinking general as well, isn't he? I mean, I'm is. not suggesting uh, the others aren't, but I mean, he no, is... I mean, he, 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 he's a man who can look at problems. Equally so with the first sea lord, Sir Mark Stanup. Oh, he oh. is a man who, um, you know... Two is, brains. Two brains. I mean, he, he was in charge of the nuclear submarines for a long while and he's also served in the cabinet, so therefore he knows how to... Uh, tell the truth without telling it too loudly. But he will be there fighting, obviously, for the Trident to be uh, replaced. But I think he'll want a bigger role for the Navy altogether, and he will certainly be protecting any budget cuts on on the aircraft carriers. What if the, um, Alexander, the chiefs have wrong-footed the government, all these announcements they've been making? I mean, some not many years ago, you were, if you were chief of the uh, general staff or chief of the... Uh, a naval staff or whatever, you were told, you know, just wind your neck in. If you've got something to say, you have the right to go to Number 10, to the Prime Minister, in private, and park your grievances on the, ta- on the Cabinet table. This is changing, isn't it? Well, you do remember in the House of Lords when they actually stood up and one by one attacked but the But they government. were all retired guys. I mean, well, that's yes, what but they I mean, do. It was, it was a sort of a dress rehearsal, wasn't it? numbers uh, game. I mean, I mean, the Labour government was stunned then. I remember the, the reaction. They were actually stunned by that. And um, to be honest, I, I think that politics will be playing a huge role in the defense uh, uh, sector ministry because simply the elections are coming. The government will be putting pressure on every top brass and every chief uh, of staff or anything. And they will be demanding that they comply with their sort of public relations stunts and so on. So I think that for those two people generals, it will be a difficult time. They are military people thrown into a public relations sea where they don't really know how to swim properly. And uh, I I feel... I think they would love to speak. No, but but, I mean, this election is going to be so dirty uh, that, you know... (laughs) Anything goes? Anything goes, yes. Yeah, uh, but it's interesting, Ned Temko, the Observer, was saying right at the front of the programme that, you know, hang on, I don't believe, I don't believe that this is going to win votes. They're going to be... Maybe the people will vote... Um, anyway, uh, the way they're going to vote. I mean, they'll either vote for Brown or against him mm. for reasons other than defence. Yes, but the spin doctors are telling both parties that it's a big issue. 
You see, mm. the spin doctors decide. I've been a spin doctor, so I know. What you tell the boss, he... he yeah, you always told the truth. Uh, mm. Of course, but I mean, you, 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 huh. you tell the truth, but it's the way you say it. It's not what you say. But I think it's more it. than spin doctors. I think the, the Conservatives have an advantage in as much as they've always regarded the Defence Secretary's job as an important job in the hierarchy of any government. Look at the people they've had there, people at Lord Carrington. Whereas you have to, got to go back to Dennis Healy in the 70s to see a Labour government uh, with men of calibre and depth and... Uh, Ironically, the, the military always regard him as the best one there. Yes, had. indeed. Yeah, actually, here's a puzzle. Here's a puzzle for us all. Only one defence secretary, only one, has ever become prime minister. And he was only defence secretary for a couple of months. Who was it? Dennis No, no, he didn't. No, he never got No, he didn't. Howard Macmillan. Howard yes. Macmillan. We have yes. to press on, otherwise I wouldn't have told you. Um... Now, something else, talking about the, um, 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 the Chiefs of Staff. Oh, incidentally, just before we leave the Chiefs of Staff, the new Chief of the Naval Staff, new First Sea Lord, is a physicist. Mm. That's another first. Mm. Pretty smart people in the Navy, yes. just thought I'd mention it. And also, um, there may be not uh, many RN in Gibraltar uh, or permanently stationed there, but glad to see that... Uh, um, the first sea lord on his valedictory visit, um, John, went to Gibraltar, as well as the Spanish foreign minister, of course. Important timing there, because the, it's the first time a Spanish minister has been there for 300 years. And uh, right. uh, Miguel Hanuel um, uh, Moratinos is, is a man who's taking risks. He was criticised a great deal in Madrid. And it was made clear to him that if he came, uh, uh, he would have to sit down with Peter Caruana, the chief minister, which is another unusual aspect because the Spaniards don't regard him as having any authority. But he accepted the fact that sovereignty would not be on the table. And if, if there were discussions in serious matters, it would be on financial and uh, on um, naval and, and environmental issues. Mm. It's also very good to see that the new uh, governor-general When's he take over? September. Yeah. Is he Governor General or just Governor? Anyway, whatever. Uh, another sailor, Vice Admiral mm-hmm. uh, Sir Adrian Johns. His last job, I think, was at Portsmouth's Second mm-hmm. Sea Lord. Um, it is a naval thing, that isn't it, Gibraltar? I mean, I mean, Very the Royal Marines so. are and part of the Navy. Particularly at this moment, when uh, in Madrid they are playing up uh, the EU environmental issue over waters, and, and they've sort of earmarked all the waters around uh, Gibraltar as, as being a Spanish environmental issue. So it's good to have a, a Navy man there who will keep an eye on these waters. Um, yeah, I mean, I always reckoned that um, as much as Gibraltar might have been downgraded, I mean, one time there was Admiral Commanding, uh, or Flag Officer Gibraltar, which is about as good as being Admiral Commanding Reserves, as far as I remember, because one of my family actually had the gig. It is a big area, isn't it? You look at the Maghreb, and in sense of terrorism, etc., is still important. In fact, um, the deputy governor of Gibraltar, who represents the government in there, is a former um, czar um, at the Home Office in charge of anti-drugs policy. So it is a big... That's right. Yes. That's right. And she's got a mansion overlooking the, the med... I know something. Uh, yeah, and I know she looks out for drug smugglers with her yeah. telescope, presumably. <laughs> I know her family. But, but That's uh, right. Yeah. yeah. It's very but strategically, important. it's unbelievable. The Russian military consider Gibraltar to be one of the probably most important bases in the world. Because if you look at it, yeah. it, it controls. You look at the, the way it's positioned. The the it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. considering, you know, the Middle mm-hmm. Eastern problems and so on. 
and and the Russians would have loved to have a base like that. You ever watched? You ever looked at? Ever looked I hope at the other water profile? pays them a few billion or something. I don't know. You know, somehow they they just love to have it. No, that's Malta. Have you ever looked at the underwater profile of uh, of, of of the Strait mm. of Gibraltar? Mm. It's it's the most marvelous uh, ASW mm. uh, operational ground. I mean, it is very important. I can't how, understand why we don't have another flag. How deep is it, Christopher? Anyway. Sorry, how deep is that? Our deep as the ocean. Yes. Who used to sing that? Mel Tolmey, didn't he? <laughs> right. I want to keep on this sort of thing about sort of the colonies, etc., because um, there's a lot going on about peacekeeping this week in United Nations discussion about troop levels in Africa, the African Union saying they can't get enough lift, etc. And it had me thinking about the Commonwealth because a lot of the peacekeepers are from the uh, Commonwealth. Uh, John, uh, a one-time director of the Commonwealth Institute yourself, this... Yeah, it's the 60th anniversary, isn't it, of the Commonwealth? Indeed. Uh, 60 years ago, there were 10 men uh, in the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting and sitting around a table like a, at a gentleman's club. Now there are 53 that will be meeting in Trinidad in November. And before they get there, they're going to be asked to examine the future of the organisation to see how you can harness the influence of 2 billion people, that's almost one in three of every person living on the planet. Uh, are in the Commonwealth, members of the Commonwealth. Are in the Commonwealth, and uh, they have a large Muslim uh, element too, 500,000 Muslims. Uh, they could exercise influence at the Islamic Conference. Uh, they're in the G20, uh, so that it's a big thing, and, and, and the British are wanting to be a leader in reviving the role of the Commonwealth in international affairs. After all, there are influences to be exerted in the UN Security Council through the, the uh, non-permanent members there. Yeah. There's another side of this, isn't there, that, um, Hajir, we quite often, we, we sort of talk about, see it through British eyes, say, you know, what are the British going to do? What's the foreign secretary going to do? What's the, you know, are we going to send troops, etc.? Most of the world is, without being rotten, is, is second 11 military operation, isn't it? And this is why you need, when you've got, um, was it one third, John, you said, one third of the world mm -hmm. is in the British Commonwealth, or not, mm -hmm. sorry, not the British Commonwealth, the Commonwealth. Yes. This is why you need that influence. But relationships are rather loose, aren't they? This is not a military alliance. No, it's not a political alliance, That's but right. it, it does have a great influence in it's all It's probably why it works, aspect. if it does work, yes. because it is loose. Yes, it's definitely useful, as, as you said, uh, wherever you go in the world, peacekeepers are bound to represent some part of the Commonwealth. And well, there are 94,000 peacekeepers working for the UN at the moment, and more than half come from Commonwealth countries. I mean, you've had the Indians in the Congo, you've had the, the Canadians in Cyprus, you've had the Nigerians in Sierra Leone. Yeah, yeah. They're always the experienced people in holding a ring. Yeah. The other, uh, there's another side of it. I remember in 82, uh, when the I mean, United Kingdom had to withdraw their naval elements in the Gulf to go south... I think it was the New Zealand New Zealand, Navy, New Zealand supply. Sort of the, slipped the into the back uh, very quietly mm -hmm. and, 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 and carried on that sort of thing. I mean, I'm, I wonder if, um, for example, um, that we do concentrate far more on the big stories when, in fact, the, the, the so-called smaller stories uh, are exercising the smaller countries uh, just as much as, uh, as they exercise, say, in Whitehall or, or, or Washington, John. And that's the value of, of this uh, meeting of heads of government, that they can get a chance to exchange experiences and ideas and, and, and look for examples of where water problems are ex 
dealt with in one part of the Commonwealth and the expertise that was used there can be transferred to another part. It, it has a great deal of influence legally in terms of scholarships too to universities. Commonwealth scholarships have done a great deal for the Commonwealth. By the way, the Russians mm. tried to copy the Commonwealth and create they, did, the, the, they? they created the Commonwealth of Independent States and it didn't work mm. Why? Because the, because the British knew how to organise mm. those things and the Russians mm. couldn't do it. We've been doing it for a couple of hundred years. As, co- as colonial power, Russia was disastrous. Mm. Look Why? at the way it fell apart. Mm. Britain fell apart beautifully, the empire. Was, uh, <laughs> I mean, as regards Britain itself, whereas Russia collapsed, and I can I remember when we were talking we about attractively it seedy, in, in the we? Kremlin. I remember those some people saying to me, "But yes, but the British they knew how to fall apart. We didn't know how to do Come it." Come on, so they didn't. Say they that. did that. They Who did said that. that. That's why the you Commonwealth name, the Commonwealth name, was taken as a copy. Copycat of the British, oh, sorry, of the Commonwealth of Nations. It wasn't taken in the Marxist way. And the, the Commonwealth reason, was And it? the reason why they took it is because they said, "Look, just like John pointed out just now, the best way to talk is sort of semi-officially. The best way to meet heads of government, and you know, you don't, you're not really pushed by the agenda. You don't really need to say a lot of things to the like the G8. They have to come up with some big, huge declaration. Nobody believes it, and so on. But here." You have that gentleman, as John pointed out, club, beautiful for talking, beautiful actually for making good decisions, and the Russians always wanted to have that with the former Soviet republics and they couldn't do it. The Americans must be jealous. With Mm -hmm. their money, who have been even more powerful. Mm -hmm. Organization of American states, nothing (laughs) wrong with that. Um, Now, we ought to be reflecting on the world at peace, as everyone should know by now. Last Monday was the 40th anniversary of uh, Mr. Armstrong stepping on the moon. Um, Although there are still lots of people who say it was all video job done in Nevada. (laughs) Uh, I want to think on what Apollo 11 meant at the time and what space exploration means now. On the line from the University of Southern Utah, that college's professor professor of international politics, Michael Stathis. Um, Michael, you must have been just a, a mere slip of a lad um, when the moon landing took place. I mean, what did it mean to you? I was 19 years old, if you can believe that. No, I can't. And it, it was incredible. For one unworldly moment, there was a feeling of being part of one of humankind's greatest historical events. Uh, there was a feeling that 1969 was going to be remembered as something greater than even 1492, that humanity in general was on the doorstep of a new age. Or, if, if, if you will, a, a new frontier. And what happened? Sadly, uh, reality sank in as early as the next morning. Uh, and I remember this very distinctly, too, although it was 40 years ago that uh, suddenly uh, uh, Vietnam came back into full focus. It continued for another five years. Watergate was three years off. World hunger, disease, poverty, intolerance, uh, 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 ignorance uh, uh, continued. It, it didn't change that much. Uh, the moment uh, uh, passed uh, rather quickly, and it's really difficult uh, in hindsight to uh, to focus on anything that uh, was as uh, big as that in the last 40 years with possibly, arguably, the, the uh, suggestion that uh, the biggest event since that moment was the presidential election of Barack Obama last, last November. But even that has been tempered by uh, the realities of, uh, of American politics, the economy, and everything else going on in the world today. I mean, in the United Kingdom, it's been 
wall-to-wall coverage uh, of uh, what went on at the moon landing, including did it take place in Nevada, etc., and why did NASA lose the original tapes and all that. But mostly it's been a celebration of it. What about in the United States of America? Well, I, I was a bit down on this because uh, as early as, uh, as late as last Friday, uh, uh, I, I noted that not an awful lot uh, seemed to be uh, doing. And over the weekend, I visited uh, uh, St. George and uh, the big bookstore down there, and there were a number of displays of uh, very nice books. Well, come Sunday, uh, and of course the, the talk shows, uh, the various news programs, 60 Minutes and all of that, uh, of course uh, uh, there was new focus, and uh, uh, by the time we got to Monday, uh, it was uh, uh, the top story of the day, and uh, they did restore uh, some remarkable footage, um, and uh, th- that was incredible that uh, that uh, NASA would uh, uh, basically tape over something as important as that. But uh, uh, everything did come off. But uh, that was Monday, and we're we're, we're kind of back to the uh, what happened Tuesday drum today. I mean, what happened on Tuesday? Was it just like uh, forty years ago? That uh, oh well, oh, yeah, it's it's sort of Vietnam, it's Afghanistan. Uh-huh. It was, uh huh. By Monday, we were talking about uh, the health care program and the arguments in Congress. Or the non health care uh, program. <laughs> and, uh, uh, if you will, very, very mundane uh, uh, things. Now, uh, one of the odd stories that came out of this you just touched on, and uh, a remarkable number of Americans uh, uh, who uh, still believe that uh, it didn't happen at all. It was it was fabricated. Um, there was a, a film that came out in the uh, 1970s, uh, Capricorn One, uh, oddly enough, starring O.J. Simpson, that uh, uh, actually focused on uh, the, the, the suggestion that this was this was a fraud. Of course, you have to put that in context. Uh, this week, the other big story, or one of the other big stories, um, an awful lot of Americans uh, are doubting uh, the citizenship of. Barack Obama himself. Right. Okay. Listen. Incredible um, things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. Nobody will ever have a go at the Greeks about uh, uh, citizenship. Michael Stathis, <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Um, Tommy goes. Uh, John, do you remember it? Indeed. Can very, you remember what you felt about it? And staying up to watch to watch it on, on television. Yeah. And what surprised me, uh, our colleague there. Not once did he mention the word Mars. I would have thought there was a uh, an, thirty years to go a debate that would start again on that issue. Why shouldn't we be thinking a little bit further? Yeah, there's no money left. That's the problem. Who's going? It's a there wasn't any money when President uh, you Kennedy announced it. You see, the problem with it. the Apollo, Apollo Eleven is mm. that everybody was expecting them to find somebody there. You know, like a small they creature. Weren't. They were. No. They were. And because they came back with the rocks, they no. thought, well, what's the point? Hajir, you um, were a chemist at the time, weren't you? Yes, I was a few years also older than Michael Studdies, and I remember we were seeing it as a race between the Americans and mm. the communists. They were, mm. uh, really, well, they were was, ahead at the time. Yeah. Mm. The, first of all, the communists, yeah, yeah, but the, the Soviet but, but Union. But they had the first man in That's space. Right, Come on, first whatever you do space. now, That's Gagarin, right. Yuri Gagarin is a symbol. Kennedy put the program in place in order to show mm. to, the, to the Russians, to the communists, that we are much bigger than you, uh, much more advanced than you scientifically and in money terms as well, and they yeah. did it. The variation of the old thing, you know, my uh, mum and dad went to New York and all we got was a lousy T-shirt. Mm. I mean, the, the Americans went 
to the moon, and John, all we got was lousy Teflon out of it, wasn't it? I mean, that's the, that was the great achievement. I mean, if they were going... Now, hang on, because we've only got a couple minutes. If they were going again, what would you like? What would you like, John, to get out of it? What, what is your Teflon? Well, it'd be more than that. I think you, you might get some new uh, scientific advance. You might get some well, new intercommunication advance. You might get the ability to live in uh, hostile climates. You never know. Aging cream? to live in hostile climates? I didn't think about yeah, it. Come on, what would you like to come out of? Uh, I mean, do you want to go back to the moon? No, I, mean, I, I, I would like to stop space exploration completely. Why? And, and use this money on, on good causes like feeding the children or something. And please, this is all silliness. This is just vanity of the leaders. Which it leaders. certainly was in Kennedy's case. No, because when Putin announced, for example, that we're going to fly to Mars in 10 years, it didn't really mean we're going to fly to Mars in 10 years. He just wanted to look good. Yeah. I want them to yeah, discover... Says, what do you think? I want them to discover cold fusion so that we can... What is cold fusion? Uh, I mean, you to, have to be quick and tell to us. To produce the energy of the sun in a cold lab. Exciting. Cool. Yes. Crikey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. We missed a huge story, by the way. Tony yeah, Blair saying that if he was still in power, he would solve Zimbabwe immediately. Mm. He would send troops and demolish them. Can, did you read this? And it was amazing. And the Russians... Uh, What's that going to do with the going to the men? No. Listen, I'm in a romantic mood. I don't want to hear about Tony Blair. I mean, he's, he's, he's yesterday's. He might not be. He might be going to be president. Back in the president of, of Europe. Okay, yes. I'm going. That's it from Terra Firma. <laughs> My thanks to Hergia Tomorian, John Dickey, and to uh, Alexander Nekrasov. You've been listening to SITREP on BFBS Radio. If you're not there already, did you know you can podcast SITREP simply by going to bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. I'm Christopher Lee. Mary, she's still in the hut. We'll be back next week. Bye now.